0: Got a couple of pictures that I want to start with today. See if you can guess which stories. These are children's Bible story pictures. See if you can guess which stories they come from. That one kind of gives it away. It's either Noah or Santa Claus. I can't tell. But the the name gives it away. All right. So we got Noah in the ark, right? All right. And the next one. You should be able to get this one. It's Moses. Parting of the Red Sea, all right, how about the last one? This one might be a little more difficult. Well, if you look at your notes, that'll give it away, all right? This is Samuel, and you know, there's some stories in the Bible that I, at least, in my mind, automatically connect to these pictures that I have of children Sunday school growing up and hearing the stories uh, Noah in the Ark, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea, as well as many other stories from the life of, Noah, of Moses. And then there's the story of Samuel as a small boy, and how God spoke to him as a small boy with a pretty big message. And this is yet another example in Scripture. While we know Samuel well, uh, he is a key figure uh, in the Old Testament in the life of David. Uh, King Saul, then David. It's still this this story where God takes him as a small boy and uses him and is already preparing him for what he's going to be is just another reminder of it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what you think of yourself in in terms of status or what the world thinks of you in terms of status. God can use anyone. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your background. If you're willing to submit to him, then He is willing to use you. And that's what we're going to look at as we continue this, this series that we're in called Making an Impact in Your World. We are called and given the opportunity to make an impact in our world for the kingdom of God. And the way that we do that is we don't focus on our legacy. We focus on being faithful. And what we find is, is that if we are focused on being faithful and obedient every day, we will leave a legacy for the Lord. Focus on being faithful and God will take care of your legacy. So we want to be faithful, we want to leave a legacy for the Lord. When we pick up here in 1 Samuel, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, and when we see this story and when we look at the life of Samuel we see that he leaves a legacy of faithful service for God and it begins right here as a small boy where he learns a very valuable lesson Now, I love stories that involve men and women doing great things those and those men and women coming from humble beginnings right I mean I love the underdog story I love the story that tells you how someone who's relatively unknown ends up doing something incredible or learning about them before they became great. And, And we see this here. I mean, right now Samuel is unknown. I mean, he is a small boy. And we get a glimpse into how God is working in his life, preparing him for what we will see him do later. Uh, he he becomes very well known later in life, but right now this is this is before all of that. Uh, we get one of these you know these stories that we hear about you know people inventing something in their garage right or starting a business in their garage that becomes incredible or somebody who we don't expect. Uh, ends up doing something that's that's very well known, becomes famous. It's those underdog stories that that we pay attention to, and that is what we have in today's passage. And with every story, there is a setting, or at least there should be. And I think it's important to understand the setting of a story uh, in order to really understand the, the principles, the impact of that story. And so we'll take a few minutes and look at the setting, that this story about young Samuel uh, takes place in. The setting is Israel long before the glory days of King David. Samuel's a small boy, and, and in this time, there's been a long period, a couple of hundred years, actually, of warfare intermittently. There's cycles of events during which Israel would suffer an invasion of some sort, and then they would suffer a famine, and then a judge would emerge, and Israel would get back on course, they would be faithful, and then the cycle would repeat itself over and over again. So you would have uh, disobedience, invasion, famine, warfare, all of that. A judge would rise up, lead the people, and then there would be temporary peace until they became complacent again, disobedient again, and the cycle would repeat itself. And this story, as we see God speaking to Samuel, takes place in one of those laws and violence. It is relatively peaceful, but what we find here is that Israel has slipped right back into complacency. They're just kind of going through the motions. They're not really being faithful. They're apathetic. And so this is what's going on during the time of this story. Their attitude toward God and the vision that he had for them as a nation, they've just become indifferent to. And their leader at this time, the high priest, his name is Eli. He's an old man who's beginning to go blind. I mean, he's nearing the end of his life at this point. And unless something changes, he is going to turn the reins of leadership over to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. There's a problem with that because these guys are not exactly pursuing the Lord, as we'll see here in just a few moments. Uh, But they were his sons, so they helped him minister in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, of course, is the place of worship. This is where the Holy of Holies, this is the, the presence of God, and this was the place of worship during this period of the history of the nation of Israel. A few years earlier, Before this takes place, in 1 Samuel 2 and 3, there's a woman who was named Hannah. And she was a regular visitor to the temple. And she prayed over and over daily, faithfully, that God would give her a son. And she, as a matter of fact, she so wanted a son that she promised God, if God would give her a son, that she would dedicate that son to the Lord. and, And God granted her her promise. Now, after the son was born, Hannah places Samuel, Samuel was the son, places him in the care of Eli, and he was to, to serve the Lord. Eli was his mentor, Eli was his spiritual tutor, so to speak, he's teaching him about serving the Lord, and he's preparing him for a life of service, and that's we can, we can kind of go ahead to Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. We'll go back to chapter 2 in a few moments, but we're going to start with chapter 3, verse 1. The boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In those days, a word from the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. Now that's important and we'll get to that in a moment. But really, because of the nation's apathy, their indifference, God was silent during this time. The whole land of Israel was stuck in a political and spiritual funk. I mean, they were complacent. And, and so much so that God withheld his word from them. The nation was half asleep, again, going through the motions, one day to the next. No one had visions except, and they really, unless they were hallucinating, they didn't have visions either. False teachers may have claimed to have visions, But God's people, God's men, God's leaders were not receiving visions from him. And so Samuel, who's probably about 12 at this time, carries out his duties day after day after day under Eli's guidance. And there's some lessons that you and I can learn from both Samuel and Eli in this passage of Scripture. So we'll walk through it together. Lesson number one is this. God can use anyone to deliver his word. I'm thankful for that because I know there are plenty of things in my life that would have disqualified me if it was based on perfection, if it was based on you know that superstar status that we tend to be attracted to in our culture. And we see a great example of this with a small 12-year-old boy who's used mightily to deliver a message. And again, against the backdrop of God's silence, He delivers an incredible message, Uh, not necessarily a good message, but it is the beginning of something great in the nation of Israel. Things things are just kind of going along. Everybody's maintaining the status quo, but everything's about to change. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. One day Eli, whose eyesight was failing, was lying in his usual place before the lamp of God had gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. Everything in the tabernacle revolved around the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. This is where the presence of God dwelt. All right, This is, of course, the Old Covenant. We now have the Holy Spirit. God's presence lives in and through His people. But this is where the presence of God dwelt under the Old Covenant. And it was so holy, in fact, that it was dangerous for anybody to come near it. So the high priest represented the people. There was a thick curtain that divided the rest of the inner chamber of the temple from the, Holy, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies. The presence of God dwelt above the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the special fixtures in this area was a lamp, the menorah. And according to the law of Moses, that lamp was never supposed to go out. So what you would see, what would happen is uh, the, the high priest, his servants, they would take turns sleeping near the lamp so they could make sure it stayed lit all night long. And so evidently this is, this is Samuel's turn to sleep near the lamp to make sure it stays lit. Eli and Samuel were probably again taking turns doing this. And, the, and, and Samuel is, again, about 12 years old, and he hears a voice in the middle of the night call out his name. So he calls back, yes, but no one answers. And then verse 5, he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. I didn't call, Eli replied. Go back and lay down. So he went and lay down. You, you can't always tell from Scripture whether when God speaks, his voice is audible, or if he speaks through some other means. I've never experienced myself God speaking audibly. I've experienced him speaking to me through the Holy Spirit, through people, through circumstances, various ways at different times in my life. But this is one of those times where it is crystal clear that God spoke in an audible voice, evidently a Hebrew voice, that sounded to Samuel like Eli. It was very clear that this is what happens, and it's not unreasonable for him to think that it was Samuel crying out or calling out to him. I mean, he, he, as we will see, has never had God speak to him. God has been silent, but he's never had God speak to him before. You know, if you're a parent, you know what it's like when a child calls out in the middle of the night. Right, we've had that at different times. You know, with our, with our Eli, he had sleep issues uh, when we first got him. He would have night terrors. And, and, and there's nothing quite like being sound asleep and having that voice go in through your sleep, through your dreams, and yank you out of that sleep, right? I mean, your heart's racing. You, I mean, it startles you. If you have a small baby, the same thing. I mean, just when you fall asleep, uh, suddenly you're awakened by this voice screaming in the night. And this is kind of what, what happens. The roles are reversed here, but Eli's an old man. He's not well, more than likely. So it's not unreasonable to think that maybe he had called out to Samuel at night, needing help, getting up, needing help in, in the middle of the night. So he's awakened, and he immediately thinks that, that it's Eli that's calling him. But he finds out pretty quickly that that's not the case. He runs in Eli's room. He says, here I am. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. I mean, Eli probably thinks he's dreaming, which is, you know, that, that's understandable as well. So he sends him back to bed. And then verse 6. Once again, the Lord called Samuel. So Samuel got up. He went to Eli. He said, here I am. You called me. I didn't call my son, he replied. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet, this is important too, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. Now this last sentence that I just read is the author's way of saying that this happened before God had initiated a personal relationship with Samuel. It's important. It's an important part of the story. Remember, go back to the first verse, the opening verse of chapter 3. And a word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. Samuel and God were not yet on speaking terms. They were not yet on a friend-to-friend basis, father-son basis. He didn't know God. He had never heard a voice, the, the voice of the Lord. And before we... You know, before we had the scriptures, we see in the Bible God breaking through history and speaking to his people in dramatic ways. The burning bush. This right here where God's calling out to Samuel in the middle of the night. We see that. I mean, now we have the completed, revealed word of God. Not that God can't still speak that way. He certainly can if he chooses to. And he speaks to each of us in a unique and a personal way but we see these dramatic examples of God revealing himself in in the Old Testament and and before the scriptures were completed. But we have Samuel here who's not only inexperienced hearing the voice of God because he hasn't heard it before, but he's confused now. So he does the only thing that a confused little boy would do. He runs right back to Eli. And then verse 8. Once again, for the third time, the Lord called Samuel. He got up, went to Eli, and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli understands that it's the Lord calling the boy. That word understood or discerned, as it's translated in the NASB, is a Hebrew word that involves a heavy element of. Of skill. When we talk about discernment, this type of discernment is not something that just happens, okay? I mean, God can give you discernment, but what this is saying is this is a type of discernment that's learned over years and experience. It's it's honed. It's finely tuned. And, and it comes through the passage of time and through trial and error, through learning and being a student of God. So God's revelation in this way had not happened in a long time, but Eli had come to know the Lord well. He had developed this type of discernment. So by the third time around, and you, don't be too hard on him. I mean, when, I'm, when somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night, my discernment's not really tuned in either, okay? I mean, my attention is not really focused. But So by the third time, he realizes, he discerns that this is the voice of God speaking to Samuel. So verse 9 he told Samuel go and lie down. If he calls you, say speak for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and he lay down in his place. Now imagine you're young, you're you're a young child and someone who you respect who is spiritually mature tells you God is speaking to you. If you hear his voice again, stop and listen. You're you're going to pay attention to that, right? I mean, there are going to be all sorts of things that are going through your head, but you're going to pay attention to that. This had to be strange, though, for Samuel to hear. But yet he does exactly what Eli tells him to do, without hesitation, by the way. And then in verse 10, the Lord came, stood there, and called as before. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel responded, speak, for your servant is listening. So here we're going to see the God of the universe revealing himself To a small child with a very important message. Now, bring up that picture of Samuel again. When I think of Samuel again in this story, I think of children's Sunday school, you know, a picture like this or a picture where he's leaning up in bed, maybe propped up on his elbow, listening, you know. And that's that's the story of how God spoke to a small boy. And maybe this happened, maybe it didn't. But a lot of times. That's where the story ends in the children's Sunday school class. Because where the story goes next is pretty rough. The message he receives is pretty difficult to swallow. And it's, it's pretty graphic. But, but we're going to continue on this morning and look at this message and what it meant. Not only for Samuel, but also for Eli, his family, and the nation of Israel as a whole. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do something in Israel that will cause everyone who hears about it to shudder. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything that I said about his family from beginning to end. God already, has, has already revealed this to Eli, okay? I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God, and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family, the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Now, Eli already knew about this. The word of the Lord was rare, but obviously God, as we see in the previous chapter, he's, you know, we, it's been revealed to him, and he knows what's going on within his family. Not a pleasant message, but a message that Samuel has to deliver. And this is important because Samuel, who is going to be a man of God, a prophet of God, has got to learn that a messenger of God, and if you teach the Bible, if you preach, if you are discipling anyone, you're delivering the word of God. And the word of God has to be delivered exactly as God says it and the way in which God says to do it. And that's a lesson Samuel was going to have to learn. And we see that later in life. He had to, to, to give some pretty tough love to Saul, to David. I mean, he, he had to be willing to give God's message even if the consequences were not good for him. He had to deliver God's message exactly as God said it and the way in which God said to deliver it. And this is a lesson he's going to learn right here and right now. Now the message wasn't a surprise. Again, it had been it had been revealed to Eli the previous chapter, chapter two, verses twenty-seven through thirty-two. We see, so so Eli is not going to be surprised about this. But you can better believe as we see. But you, I mean, you can imagine the turmoil that Samuel's going through, uh, having to deliver this message. And this is where the fact that that Eli already knew that this was coming shows us. His mistake he's living in blatant sin like his sons but or he's not living blatantly in sin like his sons but he's he's complacent about it he's kind of gone along with everybody else in the nation as far as what his sons are doing and we're going to see that uncovered here and we learn our second lesson in this being complacent which Eli was about his sin sons can be the same as being complicit in that sin just ignoring it, hoping it will go away, not confronting it, not dealing with it, is the same as being complicit in that sin. Eli had two extremely wicked sons, plain and simple, Hophni and Phinehas. They were evil, and they were doing bad things. And he didn't stop them, he didn't discipline them, he just let it go. Now, Eli was a fine priest, I mean, he was faithful. He had served the Lord faithfully. He had done what God had called him to do faithfully year after year, representing the people. But that's related to being a priest. He had not been faithful as a father of these two sons. The problem was he was passive. He was an inactive father, as we see in this story, who indulged his sons and allowed them to continue in sin. Go back to chapter 2. Verses 12 through 13. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was still boiling. Now that phrase, did not respect, is translated did not know. It's the same word used to describe Samuel not knowing or having not yet experienced the Lord that we just read a few minutes ago in chapter 3, verse 7. But the context here makes all the difference. Samuel not knowing the Lord versus Hophni and Phinehas not knowing the Lord. Samuel didn't know the Lord because he was young and ignorant. He, did, he just had not, been, had not encountered God. Hophni and Phinehas didn't know the Lord because they were willful and rebellious. They willfully disobeyed God and rebelled against God. That's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. I don't know the Lord because he hasn't hasn't convicted me and brought me into a relationship with him yet versus I've had the opportunity to know the Lord. I've been taught about the Lord and I'm willfully choosing to go a different direction. That's the difference between Eli's sons and Samuel. But they had been anointed priests despite all of this. In the following verses are one example of how they would abuse their positions. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Even before the fat was burned for the offering, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to to roast, because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, The fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would reply, No, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I will take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. So according to the law of Moses, they were to burn the fat as an offering and then take whatever didn't burn from the altar. They were supposed to receive what God provided, what was left over. But Eli's sons defied God's instructions, and they went after the choicest cuts of meat. They weren't satisfied with just what God provided. They wanted the best of the best. And that's bad enough, but it gets worse. Verse 22 of the same chapter. Now, Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These were perverse men who were taking sexual advantage of the women who came to worship. And they did it right there in the house of God. And these guys, they weren't just, you know, I mean, sin, sin, don't get me wrong, but they weren't just, you know, this wasn't just petty theft, all right? They were evil men. And what's sad is that Eli knew about it. He knew this was going on. They should have been carried to the edge of town and stone, but Eli just gives them a mild scolding. Look at verse 23. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Meanwhile, verse 26, by contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. Samuel was raised in this environment, but apparently he didn't know what was going on. God spared him from that. But God's patience had finally reached its end with Hophni and Phinehas. And God's judgment was coming. Back to to chapter 3, the message again that God delivers through Samuel, or to Samuel, to be delivered through him. On that day, I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. I told him that I'm going to judge his family forever because the iniquity he knows about. God himself, he knew about it. Eli knew about it. His sons are cursing God and he has not stopped them. Therefore, I have sworn to Eli's family the iniquity of Eli's family will never be wiped out by either sacrifice or offering. Eli's Behavior, again, reflected the times. Apathy. Politically, socially, spiritually, the the nation was complacent. So he threw up his hands and he thought, well, you know, I just can't do anything with these boys of mine. They're just going to do what they want. They've been rebellious all their lives. I'm busy. I've got duties to take care of. I've got too many things to do. So surely God will understand. I'm being faithful to him. Surely he'll understand, but no. God did not understand. God's a just God. He's merciful and gracious, and he was in this case. He gave opportunity for things to be turned around. But he wakes Samuel up as a young child and warns him. Verse 15, Samuel lay down until the morning. Then he opened the doors of the Lord's house. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son, here I am, answered Samuel. Samuel. What was the message that he gave you? Eli asked, don't hide it from me. May God punish you and do so severely if you hide anything from me that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and did not hide anything from him. Eli responded, he is the Lord. Let him do what he thinks is good. Samuel grew, the Lord was with him and he fulfilled everything. God fulfilled everything Samuel prophesied. Samuel, again, he had to deliver the message just as God had gave it to him. And you know with all of you know, that Eli ignored with his own sons. Give him credit here. He knew this and he he demanded that Samuel give him all of the message. And then his response, you gotta you know, you gotta be impressed by that. Well, God knows best. That's what the Lord's gonna do. I I have to accept it. He accepted it. Maybe that was complacency too, or he just he understood that once God had made up his mind there was nothing he was going to be able to do about it. Maybe he was just that submissive to the Lord. So Eli now has to suffer because of his sons. And this is where we learn our third lesson. Every family must guard against sin. Every family. When you look at Eli, he's the high priest. I mean, he's he all appearances he's serving the Lord. He's being faithful. He's doing exactly what he should be doing. But then there's his family that he had neglected his sons, that he had let just do whatever they wanted. Samuel had to deliver the message to him. Eli accepted it, and now he's going to receive God's punishment for his lack of faithfulness with his own family. And this is why, as a father, I am determined to make it my intentional mission in life not to repeat the sins of Eli and my family. Now, I'm not perfect by any means, but I've worked hard not to be passive with my children, my wife and my children. Now, I want to avoid this fate. This fate. And if we, any of us do, we need to recognize that our families could very easily end up like Eli's. And this is where the rubber meets the road this morning. This is where this really hits home for us. Because any of us could find ourselves in this situation if you have a family. We have to recognize that and take precautions. There are some warning signs, and I want to finish with some warning signs this morning. This morning, we we will discover how we can detect whether or not our families are headed in this direction. First, we're going to talk about disintegrating families. Disintegrating families have parents who are preoccupied with an occupation to the exclusion of their family's needs. Now, it's important to work. It's important to have a job. Take care of your family. I mean, it's just as much of a sin to be lazy as it is to, to be a workaholic, okay? But, but to do it to neglect, to the neglect of our families, God is not pleased with that. And that is evidently what Eli had done here. He was busy. Don't get me wrong. He had a lot, a priest, a respected judge. He was engaged in serving the public. And we can be pretty sure that if he weren't, God would have said that. I mean, he's pretty open about what Eli had done wrong here, so we would have known that. He was faithful. And public ministry wasn't where he had fallen short. Where he had fallen short was that he failed to give his sons the attention and discipline that they needed. Again, the Scripture tells us one of the problems here, the accusations, the judgment of God was that that Eli had not done anything to stop these boys. And he should have. Now, I'm glad I can share my ministry with my family. I'm glad they get to see me preaching. I'm glad that that we can do things like make visits together and serve God together through many other means through the church. I'm glad that my kids get to see me do that. But it would kill me if that's all they knew about me. If all they saw was the preacher, it would kill me if that's all they knew about me. I want my kids to know me. I want to be real. I want to be authentic. And by the way, I want the person they see on Sunday morning to match the person they see through the rest of the week. Uh, I mean, those aren't two different people. I mean, my goal, my desire is for my kids to see all of me both my strengths and my weaknesses. My successes and my failures. Because they can learn from my failures just as much as they can from my successes. I want to be real and I want to be authentic with them. And that, I believe, is the key. Be real with your kids. Not their best friends. That's not what I'm saying. You can't be your child's best friend. All right? Maybe later in life when they grow up and grow a brain and get mature. <laughs> but not when they're kids. You can't. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being authentic. We set boundaries, we discipline them, but we should be authentic with them. And and that involves, by the way, and I've had to do this before, and I think my kids would testify to this, admitting your faults. You may have to ask for their forgiveness when you blow it. I've had to do that before. It's very humbling, by the way, but that's part of being real. Yes, disciplining them, holding them accountable, setting boundaries for them, those are our responsibilities, but also admitting when you blow it, when you mess up. Again, because they can learn from our failures, hopefully. Hopefully, they don't repeat our failures. Let them see you live your life behind the scenes with grace, love, and humility. That's my goal. Second, disintegrating families have parents who refuse to face the severity of their child's actions. You know, Eli knew how horrible his sons had become, but he didn't do anything about it except for that mild scolding. I mean, the law, because of their particular sin, required that they be stoned. Yet, he just basically gave them a little slap on the hand, and God was not pleased. I've seen parents in such denial, and I pray that I never become this way. I've seen parents in such denial that they will not, they refuse to face their children doing something blatantly wrong. Drugs pornography, I mean, things that will destroy them if an intervention doesn't take in place. And, you know, I know parents that have tried all they can try and their kids are still headed down a bad road. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that just choose, well, if you know, that's just part of growing up. Everybody does that, right? Everybody experiments with that kind of thing. The danger, though, is is that if something doesn't change, it could destroy their lives. And in this case, this is exactly what happened with Hophni and Phineas, instead of intervening and disciplining them, he let it go, he ignored it, hoping it would go away, and of course it didn't, and it ended up killing all three of them. God's judgment. I've seen too many disintegrating families miss warning signs, and that's why I pray often, Lord, open my eyes and help me be bold enough to intervene. I want my kids to like me, You know, I've I've often attempted to buy their love with gifts. I don't like to be not liked, but I also know I have to step in if they're in danger, and that includes their behavior. The wisdom of Proverbs 19.18 is appropriate here. Discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you will ruin their lives. Same verse in the TEV. Discipline your children while they're young enough to learn. If you don't, you're helping them destroy themselves. An important truth here. If you have children who are young, you have children who are impressionable. Don't wait till they get as tall as you are to try to start disciplining them. Because by that point, it's too late. While they're young. While they're impressionable. Teach them. Third. Disintegrating families fail to respond quickly and thoroughly to the warning signs of others. Listen to their teachers. Listen to the youth leaders. If they're telling you something, don't ignore it. Don't make excuses. You know, when someone, and this is hard. Listen, I know, I'm a parent, this is hard. But when somebody comes to you and tells you your child's doing something wrong, don't immediately go to their defense. At least hear what that leader, that person has to say. Because guess what? They may be doing something wrong. And, and just defending them and ignoring the behavior is not going to help them. We see, we know that Eli knew about his son's behavior from chapter 2, verse 29. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat, not just Hophni and Phinehas, that meat that they were taking that they weren't supposed to have, He's talking to Samuel, I mean to Eli, and he's saying, you all. So so Eli's eating this too. You are making yourself fat for the best of all the offerings of my people, Israel. Eli rationalized. He excused the sins of his sons while eating the meat that they had stolen from the altar. So he's guilty here as well. As for Samuel, he grew. He heard God's voice. And the closing words of this story tell us that... The sleepy spiritual indifference that had lulled Israel into complacency here was about to come to a screeching halt. Samuel will call the nation to action. Verses 19 through 21 of chapter 3. Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and he fulfilled everything. God fulfilled everything that Samuel prophesied. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh because there he revealed himself to Samuel by his word. A man of action was now on the scene. Complacency was not an option anymore. Israel's spiritual drift was about to come to a screeching halt. Go back to the beginning when Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord because the, Lord, because the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. God was going to do an incredible work through this small, probably 12-year-old boy at the time throughout his lifetime. Was going to work through him in a mighty way and this was the beginning of his journey. This, we see the very beginning in verse 7. In this chapter, chapter 3, the beginning of Samuel's journey in his relationship with God. And it all began... All the stuff that comes after that we are incredibly familiar with, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, all that he did for the Lord began on that night where he had to make a decision. And the next day where he heard God's voice and he had to make a decision, will I obey or will I not? One choice defined the rest of his life. Success or failure. Now, God may have shown him grace had he disobeyed. That's really not the point because what we know is that he had a tough assignment. Twelve-year-old boy, he had a tough assignment, a tough message, and he obeyed completely. And that set him on a course to make an impact for the Lord like the world had not seen. Like Israel, the nation at that time, had not seen. Obedience Separated Samuel from Eli's sons. And they were disobedient. And what separates, God tells us, people will know that we are his disciples. Jesus says by our obedience. Yes, our love for for each other, but it's our obedience. Whether or not we obey, God separates us from the lost world. What separated Samuel was his obedience. And I want to try to illustrate that for you. I've got here some milk, and I usually do something that makes you hungry. We'll see if this makes you hungry after I get done, okay? Nice glass of milk. All right. Just giving you a minute to think. All right. Now, let's just say that this is... Us, okay, like people in general. There's not much, when you just look at people, yeah, we all look different and all that kind of thing, but we're, we're human beings, okay, we all have that in common, right, hopefully, I think everybody here is a human. <laughs> Some of you may be questionable, but we're all human beings. So just, you know, looking at human beings, I mean, there are a lot of similarities. There's, there's maybe not a whole lot that differentiates just human beings in general. But when it comes to being a follower of Christ versus someone who is lost, there is a key difference. There is separation that takes place. But in order for that separation to take place, something very important has to happen. In order for Christians to be distinct from the rest of the world, I can't just do that by sheer will. Something has to happen. Just like with Samuel, in order for him to make an impact for God, God initiated that relationship, right? He broke into the silence of the night and called him into a relationship with him. And now we are under the new covenant. We have Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. And because of that, we can now have the Holy Spirit living in and through us. And and that's what distinguishes us from a lost world. That's what gives us the desire and the ability to obey God in every area of life. So we're going to pretend that this vinegar is the Holy Spirit, all right? So God's presence enters our life. We'll see how many people want some of this milk here in a minute. So I'm just going to do a couple spoonfuls at a time and see if you can see something change as it enters. It's probably going to require a little more than that. I can already start to see a little bit of a difference here. Probably just poured it in there. All right. Just add a little bit more about to overflow here. I should have brought my towel in here, but I can start to see, uh, yeah. Can anybody see that? Starting to solidify there. I'm starting to see some chunks here. Uh, It's beautiful. I can smell it too, by the way. Anybody want to come help me with this one? All right, you can see it. You can see it on the spoon, right? You know what this is, by the way? This is curds and whey. Y'all remember the nursery rhyme? Little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey. This is what she was eating. Along came a spoon. Yeah, keep going. You can. It's all right. But here, let me see if I can let you see it. But there's a distinguished, there's a distinct difference now. There's a separation that has taken place between what the milk was before. I mean, just look at the spoon. Y'all see all those chunks? It's nice. See? kind of see it? That's what the vinegar does. It separates the milk. It's no longer just like any other milk, and you would argue here probably for the worse, unless you like curds and whey, which I have not tried and don't intend to try, but in a very positive way, in a very good way, when the Holy Spirit enters our lives, there's a separation that takes place. We are now distinct from the lost world. Now, we are called to reach the lost world, and we never need to lose sight of that, but it's that distinction... It's that difference, not only through obedience. Yes, that's a huge part of it. But it's not only through obedience. It's through the way that we live. It's our love, our grace, our mercy that we show. The hope that we have in life, the assurance that we have in life. The the satisfaction that people want. They may not even know they need it, but they need it. And so when we are made distinct, when we are separated, we are taken not out of the world, we are still in the world, but we are yet not, no longer of the world. But we're still called to be among those who are lost. Now, if you're here today and you haven't experienced that distinction, let me encourage you. God may be calling you into a relationship just like he did Samuel, and just like he did those of us who are now saved. He's given you the opportunity to make an impact for him in this world. And that's great and that's wonderful and we're talking about legacy and all of those things. But the greatest thing he's calling you, the greatest opportunity he's giving you is to experience a personal relationship with him that will last throughout all of eternity. You can be secure in the hands of God if you will accept that invitation. For those of us who know him, what distinguishes us from the rest of the world? If you can't look at your life and see anything that distinguishes you from a lost world, then chances are you're not being obedient to Him because it's obedience that distinguishes us from the lost world, obeying Him daily and faithfully. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for calling us out of sin into a relationship with You. Jesus, Your death on the cross, Your sacrifice. Your resurrection is what makes that possible. We could not pay our, for our sin on our own. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It is a gift that comes from you. You did the work of salvation. You do the work of salvation as you continue to mold us and shape us into your image. But Jesus, you paid the price we could not pay. And I pray that if there's somebody here today who has not received that gift, that they would today during this time of commitment, that they would come forward and allow me to share with them what to do next, how to accept that gift. Lord, there are those of us here today who know you, and and now is a time we need to ask the question, what distinguishes us from those who don't know you? Is it evident that we belong to you by our love for each other and for others? Yes, but through our obedience. Are we truly being faithful each day to serve you and to do what you've called us to do, to live by your standards within your guardrails that are defined in your word. I pray that we would be determined each day to be submissive to you and faithful to you and your word. Lord, give us strength and show us right now in this time of commitment how we are to respond to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?